0: Let's
1: go in. Welcome, friends and colleagues. Today we have our first interview with a very able and creative thinker and teacher, Olivia Friedman from Chicago. She is a Matan Bellows Eshkolot Fellow and teaches Tanakh Jewish Law and Oral Thought and uh, serves as Instructional Technology Coordinator. Oh, I wish I had that. To help me out <laughs> at Ida Crown Jewish Academy she has other uh, teaching experience she has an email in Bible from yeshiva University Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish studies uh, and a master's in education from Northwestern University uh, and um, she recently published a paper entitled I should say an article entitled this goes my academic terminology again, four reasons to leverage pop culture in the Judaic Studies classroom. So Miss Olivia Friedman starts her article with a paragraph, which I think is powerful and passionate. And I'm going to read it and then I'm going to ask her to explain it, give some examples, flesh it out, so that those who are familiar with this phenomenon and those who aren't, can actually palpably feel and see what she feels and sees. So, she starts like this. There are some students who are born with the taste of Torah and their tongues. They savor it, eyes glittering, as they argue, over different interpretations of text. To them, learning is a blood sport, debate, an art form. But the more typical teenager is blurry-eyed had bowed, checked out. He shuffles his way to limude Kodesh classes, wondering how this will help him in college. It is this student that I'm most interested in because he is the one who thinks Torah has nothing to say to him. Can you explain this? Uh, I mean, I know exactly what you mean, but maybe not everyone does. Uh, not everyone has encountered this type of a student. How prevalent is this, and what is this all about?
0: Sure. So, first of all, I do think it depends on your student population. So I want to clarify that I'm teaching in a modern Orthodox high school, and there's different uh, gradations of what Judaism looks like to different people, and some people would affiliate more and say that they are Haredim, or ultra-Orthodox, or yeshivish are conservative, unaffiliated, reformed. There's a whole spectrum. So my experience is mainly with the modern Orthodox crowd. And I think that what it comes down to is, for students who are very focused on getting into college, a lot of their time is spent on earning the grades that will enable them to get into college. And so for students like mine who are taking a dual curriculum, where they're doing the Judaic studies in the morning, and then they're doing the general studies in the afternoon, it's a long day. And at our school, the day goes until 5.40 p.m. Then they have clubs or they have sports or extracurriculars, and only then do they come home and start thinking about homework. And at that point, for many of them, a choice needs to be made. Am I going to focus on my Torah homework and my Judaic studies homework, or am I going to focus on my general studies homework? Because, you know, if you, if, as, I've, as I've depicted to you, at that point it could easily be 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, it's pretty late by the time you're starting. So once you have that choice, many of the students will opt for the homework and for the approach that's going to actually be meaningful to them and that's going to get them into college, which means the general studies. And it will be difficult to muster that same level of enthusiasm for the Judaic studies because they're not going to see a palpable, immediate payoff in the same way that they will when it comes to earning certain grades that will enable them to go to certain colleges. And so for those students, there's a prioritization, I think, of the general studies over the Judaic. And what that means is that they they view the Judaic as more optional, where maybe they'll show up, maybe they won't, maybe they'll sleep through class, maybe they'll be in class, but they won't really be focused on the class, they'll be focused on trying to do their homework secretly for one of the general studies classes, things like that.
1: So is this a practical problem that they solve in this way? Or is there also an ideological issue here, or what we might call a hashkoffic issue?
0: You know, I think that for many of them, it really is more of a practical problem because what I have found is that many students love day camp. And when they're in day camp, when they're in Jewish day camp, they enjoy learning and they enjoy davening and they enjoy all of the things that when they're in the school setting are harder for them to enjoy. And part of it is the camaraderie and the fact that they're going to meet with a lot of different children and students who they don't ordinarily meet with because they might have friends coming from all over. Part of it is that it's not high stakes, right? Whatever you do in summer camp, whatever you learn in summer camp, no one is testing you on it. None of it is going to go into your college application. So you're able to just relax, enjoy yourself. And to some degree, when it comes to the Judaic portion of the camp, that's what we call Torah Lishma, right? You're doing it, you're not getting graded on it. It's not going to affect your GPA in any way. And so I find that students really love summer camp, but they struggle more while it's possible that sometimes I've got students who aren't invested for theological reasons where they don't believe in God more of the time it's either apathy or if it's not apathy it's this practical issue of you know I'm exhausted after a day that ended at 540 and then my extracurriculars that took me till around 7 o'clock and only now I'm beginning my nightly homework and it's just a long day
1: right I think it takes different forms in different communities in some communities, though, the, the Torah studies, the religious studies are invested with more meaning and secular studies are invested with less meaning. So that they're kind of transposed, I'm going to succeed based on my Jewish studies, not on my college studies. So could you say that you're going against the flow of the modern Orthodox culture in this way?
0: I don't think so. I think the vast majority of Judaic Studies teachers really want to excite their students and engage their students, and they want to give them the tools that they know those students are going to be craving later on, meaning we know that teenagers are notoriously bad at thinking about long-term decisions. We know that their prefrontal cortex is not fully developed, and therefore they don't have the decision-making capabilities that an older individual would have in terms of thinking about what they'll need down the line. And the thing is that we want them to have the skills that they'll need to be able to learn chumash or learn Gemara and to be able to pursue that knowledge on their own or at least to follow along with a class in their community because down the line, hopefully, even if they're not necessarily so engaged now, they might become engaged. So I think that any Judaic studies teacher you talk to, certainly in the modern Orthodox community, really does want their students to Prosper to learn to care about the subjects, but it might be harder to get the students to buy in at the moment.
1: That's uh, interesting. How how prevalent is this problem? Like, could you and guess, hazard the guess as to how many students in an average classroom of the kind of community you're talking about are like that?
0: So it also depends on whether or not the school has tracking some schools have tracking, like an honors class and a grade-level class. And the thing is that when it comes to tracking, then there's also a question of what does it mean to be in honors versus in grade level. So for some, being in honors means that you're able to read Hebrew really well, and because you can read Hebrew really well, that's why they put you into honors level. Um, But for others, honors level means that also you're motivated and you have the critical thinking skills and you're excited to pursue and passionate about the subject. And so let's say we're talking about an honors level class where you simply have the capability. You happen to be able to read Hebrew well. Well being able to read Hebrew well, so that's why you're in my plumage class, that doesn't mean that you have excitement, engagement, or the desire to prioritize. It just means that you have the basic skill. Then you have my grade level students who many of them for many years may have may have felt very unsuccessful in their Judaic studies classes, or even unsuccessful in their academics across the board. Often, although not always, some of the students in those classes are going to have some sort of learning difference that might make it harder for them to process information, or maybe they have some struggles taking tests. And so these are students who have kind of built up an attitude of, I'm not gonna succeed anyway. And so you're dealing with two different groups of kids. You're dealing with a group of kids who might not care enough to try, Um, or to try very hard in a particular subject because they're more concerned about the secular subjects because they want to get into a good college and that's where their focus is. And then you might have other kids who are just not trying because they figure, I'm not gonna succeed at this anyway. The last time I tried and I took tests, you know, I failed, I got seized, why would I put in the effort? And I think it's very prevalent. I would say that at least 50% of the student body at any given time is either prioritizing the general studies simply out of necessity of the way that the day is constructed or is apathetic or not fully bought in.
1: So what you're saying is that there are two different groups of students which would follow that there should be two different solutions. You've Not heard necessarily,
0: because my suggestion of what I think the solutions should be should actually work for both sets of students.
1: Okay, let's talk about this solution because Maybe hard for people to visualize what we're talking about. Uh, we can always come back to this point. But um, your solution is to utilize pop culture. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Absolutely. So, what I say in my piece is that there are four reasons why I think we should leverage pop culture in a Torah classroom. So, I say number one, it makes use of students' passions to help them connect to Torah. And I'll explain more about all of these. Number two, it helps students become more creative thinkers. Number three, it aligns with best practices in education because effective teacher pedagogy supports the use of alternative assessments. And number four, and probably the most important, it enables the students to live a more integrated Jewish life. So to explain, when I say that we should make use of students' passions, my students are growing up immersed in American culture, modern American culture. That means that they are part of TikTok or they're on Instagram. They see celebrities uh, making statements or you know, they see the newest movies, the newest TV shows. And that's what they spend their time on when they're not in school, like at my desk. If they need a break from their homework and it's not an extracurricular type of break, they're probably on Netflix or something like that. So this is where they're spending a lot of their time and that there might just be interests that they have, like maybe they're very interested in sports, and so they're very curious about particular athletes and so on. So what I would suggest here is if I can tap in to what my students are already interested in and already passionate about, then and I can show them how those things that they already enjoy are somehow connected to Torah and can help them understand or appreciate the Torah better, then I've caught their interest, and I've also tapped into something they already like. So that's number one. And then number two, in terms of creativity, unfortunately, what we've seen, and Sir Ken Robinson is the one who has said this most explicitly, is that when students go into school, any school for the most part, they're very creative. You talk to a five-year-old and you ask a five-year-old, how many uses can you find for a paper clip, And they can find hundreds of uses for a paper clip. By the time you get to the adult who's in their 30s or even the 12th grader, they really can't think of that anymore. Unfortunately, school has kind of beaten the creativity and the imagination out of them. They've learned how to just do what they need to do to succeed, to write the paper that the teacher wants, to take the multiple choice test according to what the teacher wants. A lot of what many students are doing in school, unfortunately, is not learning how to think What they're doing in school is they're trying to parrot back or spit back or please or comply with what they think the teacher wants of them. And that's a problem on a societal level because if you want innovation and creativity and people to be coming up with useful things like the next great engineering marvel and the next great discovery, you want people to be curious and imaginative and interested, and that's what you want school to be promoting. So I find that when I use pop culture oftentimes that piques students' curiosity and all of a sudden they're thinking about something, not just thinking to themselves, well, how am I going to spit this back later? Then for my third, when I talk about effective teacher pedagogy and alternative assessments, so when most of us went to school, the way that we were typically assessed is we either had to write an essay or we had to take a test. And maybe that test was multiple choice and maybe that test was short answer, or maybe it was a written essay test, but it was a pretty typical format for many of us where the teacher asked a question and you kind of spat back your knowledge. So what I use is something called an alternative assessment and I can give examples where often I'll be asking the students to construct something or build something based on their knowledge of a subject. So one example would be in my 12th grade class, we have a class on the Jewish life cycle. And so the students might learn all about the Jewish wedding, the different components, the different parts, the bedekin and the yichud room and so on. And then rather than giving them a test on all this information, I asked them to build a wedding website where i say, take two characters, any two characters. It could be from a Disney movie. It could be from a TV show that you really like. It could be from a book. And you're going to fictitiously marry off these two characters in a Jewish wedding ceremony And this entire website is going to be devoted to their fictitious wedding. And the kids get very into it because they're excited. They think it's funny, you know. Oh, okay, I'm going to go and marry off whoever it is, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse. And I'm going to create an entire website that will be Mickey and Minnie Mouse themed. And I'm going to plan what kinds of foods they should have at the wedding and what it should look like and the decor. But I'm also going to include all the information about what is a youthhood room and what is a bedekin and why did she wear a veil and all of this. And so that's an alternative assessment, right? That's not a traditional test. And there's a lot of um, research that suggests that when students do that kind of work, where they have to transform their knowledge into something else, that's actually much more beneficial for them. It forces them to think, and it forces them to consider things, and to actually make sense of all their knowledge, as opposed to just memorizing it and telling it to me on one test. They get the test back, they crumple it up, they throw it out. And then probably the most important, the last one, is that it enables students to live a more integrated Jewish life. And here's what I mean by this. You want the students to realize that they're Jewish all the time. And unfortunately, what I've seen happening is that often you'll have a student who, in school, they might be wearing a kippah, they might be keeping kosher, whatever it may be. But then out of school they'll go and they'll eat not kosher food, or at least dairy that's uh, not with an official hashgafa at a restaurant, or they'll, I don't know, do something else, and they kind of have these two split identities. Like, I'm Jewish when I'm at shul or when I'm at school, but everywhere else, I kind of do my best to just be totally secular. Not totally, that's a bit of of an exaggeration, but what you want to show the students is, you can can immerse, um, integrate these two parts of your personality. So one of the reasons that they have Judaic Studies teachers is not just to teach content, it's also to serve as some kind of role model. So if I can show my students, look, I'm a person who watches TV, watches Netflix, reads books, and I, not only do I do those things, and I'm still a Judaic Studies teacher, I even find a way to take that knowledge and to take those things and integrate it and to some degree almost lift up the that are within, to use the Hasidic concept, and to use it for holiness, like, you can live like this too. The next time that you're watching a movie, or you're reading a book, you could think about how does this connect to my Judaism. And so that's a way of modeling how they could be. That's my approach, and I, I welcome all the feedback and questions.
1: Okay. I do want to come back to that, because the whole question of um, using um, educational theory which is based on teaching content to formulate an approach to teaching Torah, which is very heavy also on values and teaching values in the countries that you have touched on it. I'd like to explore it more. But before I to go go into it, I think it's still very important for people to understand what it is exactly that you do. Can you give us some examples of uh, how you teach uh I, I know that your website has some uh, video clips and things, uh, but uh, for purposes of here and now, if you could just give a sense.
0: Absolutely. So I have a couple different ways that I'll integrate pop culture into the classroom. One way is that I'll create it as a hook in order to start off the class. So for example, let's say that I'm teaching a section on on leaders and this is for Shmuel or the book of Samuel. And we're talking about how this first king of Israel, Sha'ul, when he's first chosen, he's on this mission for his father, he's looking for donkeys, he's very humble, he's very modest, and he doesn't even want to be king. And the prophet Samuel has to tell him, Well, you are king, you're who God has chosen and you need to live up to this responsibility. And so Saul goes through this journey where he was originally uh, very anxious or humble, not really wanting to accept the position. He even hides among the baggage until much later on, there are some errors that he makes, some mistakes, and God sends the prophet Samuel to tell him, you're not going to be king any longer. And at that point, and it seems so odd, Shaul is not willing to give up his power, He's very concerned that he should be king and that his son Jonathan, Jonathan, should be king after him. And very odd, right? How did we get from someone who was so humble and so modest, how did we get from that to a person who's unwilling to give up on his power? It seems like there's such a divide. And so what I'll do is I'll show my students some clips from Star Wars. And specifically what I'll show them in Star Wars, uh, for those who are not familiar, Probably the greatest villain that most people have heard of, at least in the United States, is Darth Vader. And what we discover is that Darth Vader has this whole backstory. He was a young boy named Anakin. He was a Jedi knight, which means he was someone who was pledged to serve the forces of good. And what happened was he fell in, which was not allowed by his order. His order wanted everyone to remain celibate, not to fall in love, not to have any passions. But he falls in love. And then when he falls in love, he has this relationship with this woman that he marries, he starts to dream that she will die. And he becomes so obsessed with the fact that she might die that he decides, I'm going to prevent her death at any cost. And he ends up allying with the Sith, which is the force for evil, because they claim that they can teach him ways to defeat death. And in that way, he'll be able to protect the ones that he loves. And so we look at this as an example of the hero to villain trajectory. Here we have this person brimming with promise, he was a hero, and then came this seminal event where he started to have these dreams and, and then he turns into a villain. And we do this as a way of trying to understand why does this happen? And we don't limit it to Star Wars, that's just the hook to get the students interested. But then I'll ask them, you know, throughout history and throughout literature and throughout pop culture too, where have you seen people transform where they started off with promise and they were heroic and then something happened and they seem to have fallen in some way. And they've, you know, either they've become fully the villain or if they haven't become fully the villain, at least they're not reaching up to their promise anymore. And that begins the discussion that then allows them to come back to King Shaul to try to figure out what happened here. How did this all, how did this all occur? That's the first way that I do it. I use this thing called a hook to hook mm-hmm. them in. And that's usually through showing a video clip. Another way that I'll do this is I'll actually have them use the pop culture for the sake of whatever the subject is. So that's similar to the example that I gave you before, where they might be creating this fictitious website where the characters on the website can be from pop culture or Disney or whomever, and they're marrying them off, but they have to include all the Judaic content, like the Mickey and Minnie Mouse wedding, for example. Sometimes I'll have them create uh, uh, like a redubbed trailer. So again, speaking of Shmuel, I had a student who took a film called The Incredibles, and she was able to take clips from the film and put it together using iMovie, and she put it all together to make a trailer that told the story of King Shaul, but using those characters, and she and her partners had to do voiceovers to make it tell the story of Shaul and not the original film. Uh, film clips, the film story. So that's another example. Um, and that's usually more for like a final assessment, right? So if the first example was using a hook, then the second example is, I'm giving you this as a summative assessment. You're going to show me your learning on this section, and the way you're gonna show me this learning is going to be through building a website, or through creating this short iMovie, whatever it may be. Aside from those, sometimes I'll simply bring in articles for discussion of contemporary events that may have happened that seem to fit well with what we're learning. So let's say I was doing a unit on HaShavat Veda, This was a real-life story that happened. There was a man who purchased a desk, and the desk accidentally, the woman who had given him the desk, she had stuffed her inheritance inside of it, $98,000 worth. And he could have said, listen, I bought the desk, and I bought all the contents of the desk but he didn't. He called the woman up, he said what he had found, he returned it to her, and this made the news. It was on the news. So I can show them this news clip that's relevant to the discussion of Hashavah Davidah, returning lost property, and talk to them about you know, what do you think made this man do it? And would you have done it? And just relate it back to them so that it feels relevant. And then that same idea of relevance can sometimes come up as I'm opening up a larger subject, a larger unit, So, for example, let's say I was teaching, there's a story of a sota, and a sota is a woman who's accused by her husband of having cheated with another man, and if that happens, and there's a very particular set of circumstances, he has to have warned her not to be alone with this man, she has to decide the warning, there were witnesses, then he's allowed to bring her before the Kohen, and there's this whole test. And on the face of it, if you read the plain shot of that story, and you're a modern teenager that feels very disturbing and very troubling, right? Why is the man allowed to put his wife through all of this? Like, why can't they just get a divorce, right? So I start off the unit, and what I'll talk about is actually the rates of not only domestic violence, but the rates at which women are murdered by their spouses. And what they'll discover is that it's actually still a problem, even now in 2021. And we'll say, by the fact that God had set up a system of this is what you do when you suspect your wife is cheating on you, God sets up a system that will actually end up protecting the woman. And then there's a lot more to say beyond that, but that's an entryway into it, is through this contemporary issue and articles about domestic violence. So these are a couple of the different ways that, you know, the media, pop culture, and so on can be used to either begin discussions, make discussions more relevant, or even as a final project.
1: I have a question for you. It used to be popular... In certain schools, especially in the very left-leaning or conservative schools, to have mock trials. For example, trial of King David for um, for the the incident with Batsheva, uh, and you know you would have the prosecutors and you would have the defenders, and sometimes, not infrequently, they would find King David guilty. Uh, would you approve of something like that, or it may be no, very effective? No, practice. I wouldn't, yes. and I'll tell
0: you why not.
1: I tell us, yes. Because,
0: because I think that respect and reverence for all of the figures that we're learning about is, is very important, and I do my best to make it very clear to my students that anything that we're learning, it's meant to humanize <laughs> the character so that you can understand the character, but at the same time, You're not in that person's footsteps, you're not in their position, and if you were in their position, who's to say that you would have done any differently from them? And that's actually based on a Gemara. There's a Gemara that tells a story where this rabbi was actually teaching, and he said, oh, tomorrow we're going to teach about our friend Menashe. So Menashe is actually a king, and he was a king over Israel, and he was a very wicked king. And he comes to the rabbi in a dream, and he says to him, you know, you're calling me our friend Menashe. Can you explain this complicated religious topic, halakha, to me? And the rabbi did not know how to explain it. And then Menashe, King Menashe, was able to explain it. The rabbi is dumbfounded, and in the dream he says, well, if you had that level of Torah knowledge, why did you worship idols and do all the evil things you did? And so King Menasha says back to him, listen, if you had been there, you would have lifted up the hem of your robe to come running after idolatry. Basically, you have no right to judge, right? You don't understand what the circumstances were like. It's very easy to look at me and to look at my story and to denigrate me, but you don't actually understand. So I spend a lot of time with students talking about that we should have a lot of respect for people and for characters and reverence for them. And what I do is is one way that I orient them to it is I say, like, imagine it's somebody that you love, right? Imagine it's your sister or it's your mother or it's your father and they're being criticized, right? You're not going to want it to be done in a way that's disrespectful or hurtful or that you're, you're taking some kind of glee in their misfortune, even if they made an error you're going to want to be compassionate about their error. And it's the same thing here, right? I think the problem with something like what you're describing with the mock trial is that you're teaching students, A, that they're better than David, that they can sit in judgment of King David, when what have they ever done to to put them in that position, right? Have they fought bloody battles to save the Jewish people and the Jewish nation? You know, have they stockpiled the materials to get ready to build the Beit Hamidash? Did they go alone against Goliath when nobody else was willing to go up against him? Did they compose poems and songs and the entire book of Tehillim? Obviously not. So who are you as a seventh grader or whoever you are to go sit in judgment of this king who made one error, an error that who knows, you could have very easily made as well. But also there's an idea that the greater your accomplishments, right, the greater your passion to accomplish good, so too is there's this idea you have a passion to to maybe do evil, right, yes or hara. So you have never done anything on the scale of good that King David has done. You may also not have done anything on the scale of what you would consider to be a negative deed that he has done. So I think that that's not the right approach. I don't agree with trials or anything like that. The goal is to try to make people human so that they can be inspiring and relatable so people can feel like wow i could aspire to be like you know king david or whomever it is while at the same time recognizing that in terms of scope probably most of us have not accomplished what he has actually done
1: that's interesting it's also a kind of follows a modern orthodox ideology that it's okay to criticize biblical figures, uh which is in itself a matter of debate um as far as uh, Rabashi and uh, King Menashe, that could be understood as a specific case of idolatry, since we no longer have the same desire for idolatry uh, and not necessarily generalizable. I'm just making some points. I think what you've said is very important, very good. And, um, you know, call Godel Mechavere Yitzhak Godel Himeno that whoever is greater than another person, he's. Evil inclination is worse than than uh, than that person. Um, there's a suka the and I think than base. Um, that is also something that has two edges, kind of. Um, but I think that within within the framework in which you're functioning uh, in the modern Orthodox community, where these ideas are accepted ideas they're also what uh, is in the air that the students breathe. So you're finding a way within their framework to bring them closer and it's very, very admirable. Um, So you kind of already discussed one of my questions which was about teaching values. You've said that your goal is uh, to bring a sense of compassion and have the students feel that these are their heroes and they should look at them with a the charitable eye. Um, is there perhaps a danger by bringing the pop culture in of relating too much that um, the student might walk out thinking, well, this is, you know, this is our heroes. They're like the heroes in Star Wars. They're really the same thing. Uh, we can derive our value and meaning from the popular culture
0: and why they're doing it, right? So for me, I love, you know, I love books and I love literature and my, my bachelor's degree is in English literature and so I love any kind of story, right? I love books, movies, TV shows. I love all the stories and so I'm very careful to say that these are, you know, universal themes or these are topics and we're seeing the topics portrayed here but guys, look, you know, this topic was dealt with, in my opinion, even more robustly and emphatically and better in the Tanakh first. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is show them that this is a human topic and it reverberates through history and it's going to show up in a lot of different venues. It's going to show up in Shakespeare and it's going to show up in pop culture. It's going to show up everywhere. But isn't it cool to see that this thing that you might get so excited about that you can watch on a movie theater right now, we had it first, right? This was within our Jewish texts from the beginning and and often in more depth. So my framing of it it is very much not, oh, go watch Star Wars and you'll find your values there. It's really meant to be the opposite. It's like, this will be a way for you to kind of enter into this discussion. But let's talk about why is it that in 2021, here you are, a 15-year-old girl, still learning the story of King Shaul. Right, It would be very easy to dismiss it and to say, I'm not a king and I'm not a leader and none of this has anything to say to me because none of this is applicable to my life. And what I want to do is show them, actually, that's not true. Because even though you might not be a king in the same way that Shaul was, you may be given some kind of responsibility, whether it's officially a leadership role or not. And you might also face some kind of challenge or temptation and hopefully you'll be able to overcome it and to do well, but maybe you won't. And, you know, these stories are here not only to inform you of the history of your people, but they're also here to actually guide you so that you can learn from these challenges that people who, to some, in many respects, were greater and wiser than us, what they dealt with and and where they struggled. So that's that's very much what I'm trying to do. I definitely don't want the kids to walk out of my class thinking that they could achieve the same things by watching Star Wars than from learning the Tanakh.
1: So how do we emphasize the uniqueness of our heritage? Uh, very often, um, the mindset of the modern age is that, well, they were kind of, they kind of got, got it basically, but since then we've developed it in so much more sophistication and detail. If you really want to understand this human trait or that human trait, go to high culture, go to the great European novel, uh, go to to great poets and writers, and, and you will get it in a much more developed form. So how do we emphasize uniqueness and make sure that their commitment is to the truth through the prism of the Torah, even though they may understand that the universal issues and others have dealt with that?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I will say, I don't think all of that can be up to the teachers. I really think that whatever the students are getting in their home lives is impactful as well. If you're seeing that your parents are devoted to God and religion and the Torah and that they take time out of their lives to discuss these things with you or to go to synagogue with you, that's going to be very impactful on you. What I'm doing in my classroom is going to build on that foundation you already have. Now, if you're coming in and you don't see any of that at home, then there's a question of, are you curious? You know, are you interested? Is there something that I can do to grab your attention and to show you what I see as the smorgasbord that is being offered to you through Judaism and the Tanakh? Or is it not that way? Like, are you very negative about it? In which case, you know what? All I can really do at that point is try to be a positive part of your life so that you at least have a memory, you know, I had a Judaic studies teacher and she was a positive part of my life. She wasn't trying to judge me. She wasn't trying to do anything to me. She was just there, and that was what I needed at the time. So very much a lot of it does depend on the unique circumstances of the individual and of the student. But aside from that, I do think that we can talk about how the main religions in the world are the Abrahamic faith right, the Abrahamic religions, people have heard of Judaism and Christianity and Islam. And granted, other stuff has taken over as well, and people now know about Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism and all of that. But for the most part, many people in the world are Christian and Muslim, and there's something to be said, you know, our religion was first. We believe it's the original thing, it's the truth, you know, that that Abraham was our Abraham, God was our God. And and you should be proud. You should be proud that you're a Jew, that you were born into this heritage, that you get to learn it in the original Hebrew. And that's another thing. I think that it's important for students to understand how lucky they are to get what they have, which a lot of them don't understand. So, right, my mother grew up um, in Uzbekistan. And so I grew up my whole life understanding that she didn't necessarily have a fully, you know, a formal Judaic education the way that I did. She had a lot of learning passed on, you know, from mother to daughter, from the community. She did go to Keder, but at the time she was high school age, there, it wasn't like there existed for her a Judaic studies program like I have and was able to go through or that I give to my students. A lot of the students, they live in a bubble where they just take for granted that what they get is what everyone gets. And I think that sometimes it's actually valuable to show them how that's not true. And some of that might be through reading histories, like, you know, learning about the Refusniks and Natan Sharansky and so on. Some of it might even be by showing them how there are right now in different parts of the world women and girls who would love to go to school, and they can't go to school because they're busy having to spend their days getting water for the family, or other things like that just because of the way that their country or, or their community is set up. And so I do think that there's, there needs to be a focus even on orienting the students towards a life of gratitude and realization of the opportunities that they have because unless you actively show that to them, they're not going to necessarily come there on their own. If all that you've seen is the bubble where every other kid is the same as you going to the same modern orthodox high school as you, you don't necessarily think of that as a privilege. You think of that as, "Eh, this is what I'm being forced into. So part of what happens with COVID actually and the pandemic, after we all had to switch to learning on Zoom, first of all, we were very fortunate that our school was successful at making that switch. But also when they came back to in-person school with masks and social distancing and so on, they were so much more appreciative now that they knew what they were missing. And I think that there's something to be said for that, too. First, you orient students to even understand the value of school. And then you can also try to explain to them the value of their Judaism and their Jewish heritage.
1: So, yeah. I appreciate that. You know, since you gave me an opening, I'm going to ask to the degree that you're comfortable if you could try to relate your approach. And we always speak out of our past, don't we? Uh, to, yes, your background your um, parents' background, your educational journey, how did it lead you to the realization that this is the correct way?
0: Sure, yes, I can definitely do that. So, um, like I said, my mom is from Uzbekistan. She's a Bukharian Jew. And my dad is uh, born and raised here in Chicago. His parents were Holocaust survivors. So I think I had a really unique upbringing because my mom had really lived the experience of being a Torah Jew, right? As a young child, she would take a chicken to the person who was going to slaughter the chicken, and he would slaughter it, and she would do the actual koshering process with the blood and taking the feathers off and the salt, and all of that was a lived experience for her that she had actually done. She didn't have to learn that out of a book. That was something she had lived. Meanwhile, my father, he had started off, but he had gone to public school originally, and it's funny because the people in the public school when they weren't able to challenge him adequately somehow came up with this idea. They told my grandmother that he should go to a private school and specifically to a Jewish private school, which he did. And he thrived there. And so that's, you know, that's the background I come from is my father on the one hand has all this textual knowledge and my mother on the other hand has all this lived experience. And in addition to that, when they raised me, my mother would spend a lot of time reading books and giving me books to read. And so I read all the classics at a young age, uh, whether it was the American classics or, you know, the British classics or a lot of the Russian classics in translation, because she didn't teach me Russian. And so all my life, I was being exposed to these themes that you see throughout literature of, you know, a tragedy and triumph and uh, the greatness of man, but also how dark and disturbed man can be and what great heights and what great depths. And at the same time that I'm doing all of this, I'm also learning the Tanakh and reading through the Tanakh and reading the Midrash. And the Midrashim were fascinating because they have all the magic and the color and the backstory that illuminates the characters and tells you who they are as people, right? If you read about Asab and all that you're reading about him is what's straight up in the pshat, you got a story where actually he seems to be the character that's wronged in the story. But if you read about Aesop and you read about him in the Midrash or in the Talmud, you get a very different picture of who he is. And so at a later date, you can also try to reconcile. What can I learn about and from the Aesop from the Pshat? And what can I learn about and from the Aesop from the Midrash? So all of that was, was kind of going through me as a child. And then what happened was I went to high school And it was a Jewish high school, but it wasn't the best fit for me. And I had an experience there that was not fantastic. And mainly what the experience revolved around was that the people who were supposed to try to build relationships with me in an authentic way and understand me really were not successful in doing so. Um, I felt very much like there was a mold. And they wanted everyone to be a cookie cutter in the mold. And that rather than trying to understand someone who was asking questions out of genuine curiosity, but who was asking questions, they just wanted that person to get shaped into fitting the mold. And so that's part of where I had just such a negative experience with that. And I realized, you know, having relationships with students where you look at them as people and not just as vessels that need to be filled up with knowledge, that's a huge part of, at least to me, my educational approach, right? I want to know who is this student What are their passions? What do they enjoy? How can I reach them, basically? And look, there will always be some students who are very diligent and who will come into a classroom and do their work, and they don't need all of that extra investment from me, because they will just do that in any class. But there's also going to be those students, like I said before, who have spent a lot of their educational careers not feeling understood or feeling like they're constantly failing, And those are the kids where if I know their backgrounds or I know their interests and I can find an entry point, I can actually hopefully make some kind of meaningful difference for them in the way that I wanted someone to connect with me when I was in that high school situation and it didn't work out. But I ended up switching schools and I went to a non-Jewish high school uh, called North Shore Country Day and I also went to a Jewish college at night called Hebrew Theological College and that was a very good combination for me because I was learning from the experience of being in the classroom what a very top-quality, challenging, secular education could be like and how the teachers would relate to me. And I was also learning very interesting subjects in the college because that's when I took Jewish medical ethics, which had never been offered at the high school I had been at. Right there, I had learned the more traditional, chumash, uh, Navi, and so on, but the Jewish Medical Ethics class was absolutely fascinating. And I learned, you know, these things that I thought, I'm just learning like ancient history, like, you know, which I happen to enjoy, but no, there's real life applications. Like I could be learning about the subject of organ donation and there's actually texts from the Gemara that are gonna be brought to bear on whether or not I should be signed up as an organ donor today. And that's where the relevance piece came in because I found that fascinating. And I thought to myself, wow, You know, if I could capture people's attention the same way that my attention has been captured here, by seeing how relevant this content and this material is, that would be great. So down the line, I attended during college and Revel and all the rest of these places, and it came a time for me to get a job, and my very first job, which I'm grateful for, was at the Orthodox Union, but it was sitting behind a desk in a cubicle And I absolutely hated it. It just was not for me. I don't Mm. belong in a cubicle, you know, writing up reports at a computer.
1: I bet everyone can see that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not where I should be. It's not where I should be at all. So it wasn't good, but it was a great learning experience because if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't know how much I don't enjoy that kind of work. (laughs) I'm glad that I had it. And my husband was accepted to law school, And he was accepted in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And so we were moving to D.C. And if he was going to be in law school, then I had to find a way that I was going to support us. You know, we had to live on something. And I figured, well, at this point, the main skills that I have, I could be an English teacher because I had, you know, English literature was my bachelor's and my background. Or maybe I could be a Judaic studies teacher because I have the master's in Bible. So I applied to different schools. And I was very fortunate that a pluralistic school called the Charles E. Smith Jewish Day School took a chance on me, and they really mentored me and trained me and gave me a lot of the learnings that I needed to be effective, which is a whole other subject in terms of how teachers become teachers, because the very beginning, when you're first starting out in a classroom, it's very difficult. You don't necessarily know what you're doing. You have to find or be assigned mentors and learn on the job because reading in a book about how things should go and actually doing it are not the same thing, obviously. And, so, and then when my husband graduated law school, uh, we were looking for work and we wanted to come back to the Chicago area, which is where my parents are, and that's what we did. And I'm now employed at Ida Crown, where I've been for the past six years. So uh, everything that I'm doing is very much born out of my own experiences, but they're my own experiences also bolstered by education research that supports what I'm saying about the need for social emotional learning, connection to the students, building relationships, trying to find entry points. And one thing that I think is is most important is um, Sharon Freundel, who's the head of the uh, Jewish Education Innovation Challenge, JEIC, She has a really important quote uh, where she talks about how, right, if a student isn't doing well in a math class, okay, you know, maybe they're not going to be a mathematician. But if a student isn't doing well in a Judaic studies class, let's say they're failing, or even not failing, let's say they're getting
1: I can hear in you the passion, intelligence, commitment, and perseverance of your mother. Kudos. Yeah, I appreciate that. Congratulations. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. And sure. then I think we all need to chew on what you have brought forth here. Uh, maybe about 20 years ago, I spent the Shabbos uh, together with uh, Rabbi Saul Berman, we were stuck there for different reasons. He was the, the, uh, the uh, scholar-in-residence, and I was just stuck. But <laughs> we, we talked about uh, one of the things that carried out from that conversation was the concept of the high culture and the low culture. We have many precedents for incorporating high culture into the worldview of Judaism. We have Rav Raphael Rafael Hirsch, Rav uh the whole um culture in germany and yes classical or high culture uh classical music the great novels uh poetry philosophical writings uh dealt a great deal with human condition and intersected in many ways and i think at an intermediate level of analysis uh were very similar to what uh classical Jewish sources talk about. If you get to a deeper level of analysis I think they are not the same. But that's a topic for another conversation. At least for most people those those could be seen as two parallel traditions. When we go to low culture and he cued me into it, uh you are dealing with a loaded gun. Nobody is going to go go run out and make Schiller his guide in life. Uh, but the low culture is very persuasive, very um, it swallows you up and it's not particularly very morally clean. Uh, mm-hmm. So do we buy do we and this is a bigger the- ideological issue, you know, do we really conflate the two and they are different, especially on that issue of, of sexual morality? Uh, mm-hmm. Do we conflate the two? and have uh, impressionable young people walking out thinking that the dual truth is found both in Judaism and in pop culture. Uh, Or do we not? Or do we do it and watch out very carefully to make the distinction? Uh, We cannot put down a culture that we use to illustrate our culture. So how do we deal with that?
0: Yes, okay. So that's a really question, and my real answer would probably be very long, so I'm going to try to give an abbreviated version of it. Here's what I'll say. Um, First of all, a lot of times people make this distinction between high culture and low culture, and it's not really true, and here's what I mean by that. If you're reading Othello, or even if you're reading Anna Karenina, you're dealing with a story of adulterous people who kill each other in passions and so on. And so that story can be found on any TV show today. Now, they're dealing with it on a very beautiful level in terms of the writing, the writing is very beautiful, and maybe the depths of the character exploration are deeper, but at the end of the day, that is the story. And I think sometimes people forget this because people put a label on it and they say, well, it's by Tolstoy or it's by Shakespeare, it must be higher. But the actual story itself is not really that high or that clean. But I want to start with that, you know, just in terms of the crux of the issue, in terms of adultery, morality, and so on. If if people were able to read Anna Karenina or Othello, then it's not so crazy that they could read a young adult novel or, or whatever it may be. But that having been said, aside from that, I think that, yes, you do need to be very careful about what you're introducing in your school, and you don't want to introduce something that the students would not have already seen or be familiar with. And so that's why you would have to know the students in the school. If you have students in a school who truly are segregated from pop culture, media, and so on, then this is not the teaching approach that's going to be meaningful to them. And in fact, like you say, it might even go the other way and it might be problematic for them. If you have students in the school who might be familiar with Disney movies, but they wouldn't be familiar with other stuff, then yes, only bring examples if you're gonna bring examples from Disney or from whatever would be the culture in the school. But in my school, I know my students and I know what they're watching and I know what they're seeing on Netflix and so on. So for me to bring in Star Wars, for example, is no big deal, right? There's nothing in it that's particularly not clean, that there's maybe a kissing scene, which they've definitely seen before. Um, Where this gets more tricky is when it comes to things that are rated, you know, to, to use the movie and film ratings, like rated R. So there it gets complicated and you have to, A, you have to follow the policies of your school because a lot of schools will have strict policies of, about that, what you can and cannot show or share or see or so on. For me, I tend to err on the side of possibly saving that kind of content for adults and for adult education, and not for the average teenager. But there are sometimes teenagers who are not the average. So an example is, there was a famous TV series that swept the nation. It was called Game of Thrones. Now, Game of Thrones was actually what we would call epic fantasy, but it was epic fantasy not like Token, but beyond Token. And what I mean by that is, when you're familiar with J.R.R. Token, You're familiar with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and the story about the fellowship where all of the good guys are eventually able through much difficulty and suffering to triumph over the bad, but at great personal cost. And there's romance, but there's never anything explicit. Now, the thing is, of course, that that's a sanitized version of history. Because when you look at actual history, people do dark and devious and problematic things, and that includes in the sexual arena. And you see that, by the way not only in secular history, you see that in Jewish history, and certainly you see that in the Tanakh. So, for example, in Shoftim, in the Book of Judges, the very last scene in the Book of Judges is something called the Begiva, which is where this man is traveling with his concubine. He stays over in a town called Giva, which is a town belonging to the Benjamin tribe, and then men come and congregate at the door of the house, of the place where he's staying, and so the man offers, the man of the house, his virgin daughter and also the concubine that belongs to this individual. And he, and he gives them, he wants to give them. The men decide they're only going to take the concubine. They take the concubine and they hurt her. They rape her the whole night long. And in the morning she comes back and she's fallen down on the doorstep in a faint. And her husband, who's no prince, as, you know, he, he tries to talk to her. She doesn't answer. He dismembers her body, he cuts it up into 12 pieces, and he sends it out throughout Israel. Now, that is a gruesome story, and that's an hour Tanakh. And, and that's the kind of thing that you'll see in Game of Thrones. So there are some people where, if they can approach this with the right you know, appreciation and perspective, and there's also a whole question about books versus TV shows, because TV shows can have a lot of nudity, and that may be very problematic, and especially... Uh, for men, in my opinion, more than for women. But you could read books, you know, that don't have the official nudity um, in them, and you could still have the storyline from the books. There are some people who are going to be riveted and find this combination of historic historic uh, truth and epic fantasy and so on fascinating. And to them, if you can show them these things that you find so interesting and these twists and turns and strategy that are so compelling to you, we have that all in our own history, in our own Tanakh, teaching the moral lessons, teaching the deeper values. That will really be helpful. But to a you know, an average teenager, that wouldn't be helpful. So you certainly do have to be a person who is selective and who knows your audience and who knows your students and who has to make a judgment call about is this going to be good and uplifting for them or not. Right? I don't think that you
1: exposure also is not uh, a bad thing Uh, but uh, you certainly you're certainly approaching this with a very sincere um, desire to better your students lives and bring them higher personally and I probably your mother would agree to that I'm very grateful that I grew up in a closed culture because uh, the spiritual plant uh, requires a lot of tending, and when it's tender and small, it can easily be smothered by negative influences. Um, True. The older you are when you're exposed to these things, the more chance you have had to grow and harden, and uh, continue developing. So yeah, we we are fighting the culture, and that is a difficult uh, matter. And making use of a culture when it smothers everything. <laughs> is a difficult matter i give you um, a lot of uh, appreciation for taking on such a difficult subject but it seems to me that uh, you are well capable of refining it and doing more with it and i wish you a lot of a lot of success i want to thank you for coming on the podcast podcast it's our first one Um, i hope people benefit from it Just to end off, you have your own podcast. Perhaps you want to tell people where they can read your material or can hear your classes.
0: Sure. So first of all, I want to clarify that my podcast is meant for adults. And it's this concept of using pop culture to bring people uh, to Judaism that's happening there. Which means that if this is not something you need, if you're already invested and excited about your Judaism and you don't need to see it through that lens, then there's no need to go there and to check it out. Uh, but if you are interested, what I've actually done in that podcast is I have taken storylines so far from Game of Thrones, and I'm planning to expand it to other storylines as well to help explain and illuminate some of the stories in the Tanakh. So that podcast is on uh, Apple and Spotify and so on. That's called Enchanted Torah. And then if you wanted to see my other work, um, or my students' work and what they create, I have a website, and that's Olivia, O-L-I-V-I-A, Friedman, S-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, dot com. And I welcome everyone to check either one out as appeals to them. And thank you so much to you, uh, Dr. Levin, for being willing to host me and have me on this podcast and ask me all these great, thought-provoking questions and be interested And uh, I very much enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you very much. Please send regards to your wonderful parents.
0: Will do. Thank you so much.
1: And may we all have only blessings.
0: Amen.